Let's stand together, and we're going to read the Word of God together, and then I want to get into the Sermon on the Mount. This is what we're tackling tonight. Are you ready? Read it with me. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you will not commit adultery. I I hear about five of you. Come on, everybody. Ready? Verse 28, but I say to you that whoever looks at a woman lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you. For it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and cast it from you. For it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. Say with me, everybody, that's not literal. All right. Verse 31, furthermore, it has been said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that whoever divorces his wife for any reason except sexual immorality causes her to commit adultery. And whoever marries a woman who is divorced commits adultery. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely but shall perform your oaths to the Lord. But I say to you, do not swear at all, neither by heaven, for it is God's throne, nor by the earth, for it is his footstool, nor by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Nor shall you swear by your head, because you cannot make one hair white or black. But let your yes be yes, and your no, no, For whatever is more than these is from the evil one. That's the Sermon on the Mount. And because it's there, we're going to tackle those topics tonight. Father, thank you for the word of God. Jesus, thank you for giving us this powerful teaching, the greatest sermon ever preached. We pray you'll open our eyes and ears to hear what God is saying to us. Will you breathe a prayer, dear church, and just say, Lord, speak to me tonight. I receive your word in Jesus' name. Amen. Bless you. You can be seated. How many of you are glad you're not teaching this? Right? Because we're dealing with some touchy stuff tonight. But um, last time we saw that Jesus is very focused on what? Your heart. He's very focused on your heart and mind. Now, he knows that all sin begins there. That's why he's focused on it. All sin is hatched there in your heart. And that what ends in sinful actions begins with sinful thoughts. So Jesus took the Mosaic commands like, you shall not commit adultery. Well, he was just dealing with the action. All right? The the commandment just said, don't do it. But Jesus adds more dimensions to that commandment. It says you got to deal with your heart. If you don't deal with your heart, then you're going to break out in sinful actions. Because the problem is a heart problem, not an action problem. You with me? He walked us through, for instance, the inward stages that lead to outward murder. He tells us how murder happens, all right? Uh, He taught us to deal with our hearts to maintain a heart of forgiveness so that we don't progress emotionally to the place where we act out and want to hurt somebody. Jesus said, deal with your heart. 
to avoid the outbreak of murderous sin. Now, this time, he's continuing this theme of dealing with your heart. He's adding another dimension now to the commandment, don't commit adultery. And he's going to focus on the lust that leads to it. Because adultery begins in the heart, not with an action. You have heard that it was said of those of old, Moses, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, whoever looks on a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And I got to say, you got to switch it and say that a woman can do the same thing. It's generally men, but a woman can do the same thing. Now, this passage has troubled so many people because you say, well, then walking with Christ is impossible because who doesn't? at least every once in a while, look at a member of the opposite sex and battle lust. Now, y'all need to take the halos off the top of your head when, when I'm talking to you real tonight. All right, we're talking real talk. Who hasn't dealt with that? Who doesn't deal with that? If you're alive and your heart is beating, there's some, at least from time to time, you're going to deal with it. So, so many, particularly young people, have said, well, then I'm sunk because... I'm struggling with lust all the time, so I'm in adultery all the time, so I might as well just give up. Ever been there? You don't have to raise your hand. Okay? So what did Jesus mean? Is he laying something on us here that is just impossible to live up to? Well, here's where the language comes in. It's very, very important. The New Testament is written in Koine Greek, all right? And there are verb tenses. There are tenses to verbs. And, that, and the tense depends on what the verb means. Now, let's take the word looks. Whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has committed adultery with her already in his heart. Well, the good news is that that verb looks is in what we call a present active tense, a present active verb tense. And what it means is whoever looks and keeps looking. It's not the one-time look. You know, you've heard about the old preacher and the young man walking down the beach. And they're walking along talking about the things of God, and the young man is looking to the old preacher to, you know, sort of mentor him and teaching the things of God. And, and then all of a sudden they see coming their way a very attractive woman in a bikini. So they're talking. Oh, the Lord this and the Lord that, and she's getting closer and closer. Finally, she walks right on by and it's very quiet between the two. And the old preacher says to the young, didn't God do a good job? A <laughs> little bit of comic relief. Don't look so serious at me. But here's the thing. What Jesus is talking about is the second look or, or the constant look or the lingering look. He's not talking about the first look. So he's referencing not turning away uh, or uh, ongoingly looking with intent. Here's the thing, with intent to follow through if the situation affords itself. That's how Jesus could say, you've already committed adultery in your heart because you've already lingered and looked and constantly looked 
and kept looking so that if the situation affords itself, you're very liable to do something about it. He said, that's the person who has committed adultery with, uh, against her already in his heart. That's who he's addressing. So what is he dealing with again? He's saying you need to deal with your heart before the action manifests. And that's the teaching of Jesus. He, he's teaching self-control. You can't help the first look. You're in life. You can't help it. You can't stop it like those two walking down the beach. They couldn't control that woman. She's coming towards them. They can't, you know, turn away and huddle down and act stupid when she passes by. You know, life puts them in front of you. But, the, the, but Jesus' message is you don't have to have a second look or even more importantly, a lingering look. You don't fellowship with it. You don't keep looking. You don't entertain it. Are you with me? You can't help the first look, but you can help the constant look. That's his message. So he's not giving us an impossible command. Here's what he's doing. He's helping us to watch over our heart. What does the proverb say? Watch over your heart with all diligence. For out of your heart flow all the issues of life. Okay? It all comes from the heart. Sin begins in the heart. Righteousness begins in the heart. Good decisions come from the heart. Bad decisions come from the heart. It's all the condition of your heart. And Jesus was a heart savior. He dealt with the heart. And that's what the Sermon on the Mount does. It takes the Mosaic commandments and adds breadth, width, height, and depth to them. Three dimensions to a one-dimensional commandment that only dealt with action. But Jesus is teaching us how to avoid the action by keeping your heart right. Then he gets very strong and he says, let me tell you something. There are times you need to get ruthless with wrong desires. Okay? Listen to what he says. Now, he's making the point with an exaggerated illustration. Please understand, this is an exaggerated, hyperbolic illustration. He is not telling you to literally do this, although, unfortunately, throughout Christian history, people have literally done these things, not understanding he didn't mean it literally. Right? If your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. Please don't. He's teaching there are some desires that you need to get ruthless with. That you need to square off in spiritual battle with and say, this is as far as you go, it stops here. He says, because it's more profitable for you that one of your members perish then your whole body be cast into hell. In other words, he's, he's talking about the enormity and, and the seriousness of sin. We don't take this kind of sin seriously in America. We're in a sex-saturated, pornographic culture. Come on, can we talk real? We're in a pornographic culture. Uh, it's a depraved culture, a degenerate culture. We're in a wicked culture, morally. And it's going to come at you all the time. So you've so you got to learn to deal with it. And he's saying, whatever you've got to do to deal with these desires, do it 
even if it seems ruthless. That's the intent of the illustration. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Again, please don't. You know, if we took all these literally, there'd be a lot of one-eyed, one-handed people in church. All right? But here's the thing. He's telling, he's giving us a principle. Don't sacrifice the, the health and spiritual well-being of your soul and your eternal destiny on the altar of a sin. Jesus often uses hyperbole to make a point. He does it all the time. Anything is better than sin that leads to hell. And sometimes you've got to ruthlessly deal with it. You've got to get serious about it. So let me give you some examples. If you've got to throw that computer away, throw it away. If you've got to unplug from it, unplug from it. If you've got to surround yourself with accountability partners and say, look, I'm really struggling with this sin. Now, I'm not just talking about lust. Anything, anger, unforgiveness, greed, fear. Um, there, there's a million possibilities, but it's weaknesses of the flesh. You know what yours are, and I know what mine are. So he's saying whatever the weakness of your flesh is, be ruthless about handling it, dealing with it, being honest about it. Don't tell yourself it's not there. Don't walk in denial. If you're constantly dealing with something, own it, confess it, and say, whatever I've got to do to get this under the control of the Spirit of God, I'm going to do it. Paul gave the best advice ever, and I'm going to tell you what the Bible solution for wrong desires is. Are you ready? It's in Romans 8, 12 to 13. Therefore, dear brothers and sisters, you have no obligation to do what your sinful nature urges. Well, we need to read that together. Can we read that together? Therefore, dear brothers and sisters, let's personalize it. I have no obligation to do what my sinful nature urges me to do. For if you live by its dictates, you will spiritually die. It will cut you off from God. You don't lose your salvation. You lose your relationship. For if you live by the, its dictates, you'll die. It, it, it kills the life of God in you. It grieves the Spirit. But if through the power of the Spirit, now listen carefully to what he says. If through the power of the Holy Ghost who lives in you, if by that spirit you put to death the deeds of your sinful nature, you will live. How does the believer get victory over wrong desires? The power of the Holy Spirit within you. And that means you've got to keep your inner man strong. Here's two verses easy to remember. Luke 140, Luke 280. It's just 140 multiplied 280. Luke 140, Luke 280. It says, both Jesus and John the Baptist grew up mighty in spirit, mighty in their inner man. They grew up Herculean in their inner man. That's why it's a broken record here at Turning Point. I tell you all the time, and I'll never stop, every day get into that word. 
Every day, don't let anything get you out of your personal devotional time with God. Don't let anything get in the way. Get into that Bible every day. Now, I'm right now, we're putting together a calendar for 2024. And I'm going to make it available to everybody on radio, but you're going to get it first. It'll be available uh, in November. And it's 2024. And, and with every single month, it's going to be a beautiful nature picture with a verse under it and then under every day of that month a bible reading so that together we're going to go through the bible in a year amen we're going to go through the bible in a year it's going to be a beautiful calendar full size calendar and um we're going to do it together bible reading every day so that you don't need to figure out well what should i read you'll know what to read and together we'll go through it because, listen, if ever there was a time, the, the culture is too toxic to not be in the Word every day. I, I don't know how any believer is going to make it. Well, I just wait for Pastor Jeff to preach on Sunday. Don't do that. Don't let me be your only source. You, you gather your manna every day yourself. Amen? So just buckle up. You're going to love the calendar. It's, it's going to be beautiful. And I'm excited about it. We've never done a calendar. I'm looking forward to it. Now, uh, so the Holy Spirit within the believer is there to put to death the sinful deeds of the body. So as long as your inner man is being kept strong, it quenches the wrong desires of the flesh. Restrains it, kills it, mortifies it. So Jesus is telling us, in essence, whatever it takes deal with it. Amen? And the best solution is to walk in the Spirit. Now, how many of you are good with this so far? So say, I'm not going to take my eye out, and I'm not going to cut my hand off. Good. I'm just glad to know. Just want to be sure. Pastor Jeff told me to pluck my eye out. No, I did not. Okay. Now, next, Jesus tackles the tough topic of divorce. I'm, I'm going here because he went here. So let's see what he said. Furthermore, it's been said, whoever divorces his wife, let me give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that whoever divorces his wife for any reason, except sexual immorality, causes her to commit adultery. And whoever marries a woman who is divorced commits adultery. Now, this is a hard saying. So let me unpack it. First, the first part of verse 31, he's tackling the ease with which men of his day uh, divorced their wives. If she didn't flip the eggs right Saturday morning, he just divorced her. It was casual. There was no court. There was no lawyers, no lawyer fees. If he, didn't, if he decided after marrying her, a couple of years goes by, that he's tired of her, tired of the relationship, whatever, then all he had to do was follow what Moses wrote in Deuteronomy 24, verse 1. This is what he turned to as a good Jew. Here's what Moses wrote. If a man marries a woman who becomes displeasing to him. Notice, ladies, not if he becomes displeasing to you, but only if she becomes displeasing to him. And he finds something indecent about her, and he writes her 
a certificate of divorce, gives it to her, and sends her packing. Now, how's that for you? Easy peasy, right? Uh, it was super easy for the man uh, to find something displeasing. Oh, it doesn't take long at all. There's all kinds of things I'm displeased about. To justify putting her away. Okay? The certificate of divorce, here's all he had to come up with. It had to be written in 12 lines. No more, no less. 12 lines. Then sealed by the husband and signed by witnesses. It was then delivered to the wife either by him or by a messenger in the presence of two persons. And it was done. See you, dear. God bless. Goodbye. Been real. Hasta la vista. Sayonara. Have a great life. Don't call me. I'll call. Don't call me. I'll call you. I get, like I said, no court, no judge. Just sort of a good old boy club where the males would be there, the male buddies of this guy would be there uh, to, to serve her the papers. And it was that easy under Moses. Now, hang on, because you're thinking, well, that's the word of God. Moses gave them the word of God. Hang on. Because one day the Pharisees asked Jesus if it was right to put away their wives this way. Are you cool with this, Jesus? Is this all right? Because this is what we've been doing since Moses. And here's what Jesus said. Moses permitted you to divorce your wives this way because you had hard hearts. But it was not this way from the beginning. So Jesus reaches back to God's original intent for marriage laid out in Genesis, and here's what it was. One man, one woman for life. That was God's original plan. The only just cause, and we call, we call this the exception clause in Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount. The exception clause was if the spouse is unfaithful sexually, gets into an affair, one night stand, whatever, then there is just cause to divorce. But we, that's called the exception clause. It's the only exception he gives. I just got to tell you the way it's here in the book. It's the only exception he gives. Sexual unfaithfulness. Because the covenant has been broken because the two shall become one. And that has been broken. It's not to say that if that happens, there can't be forgiveness and restoration and the marriage can still survive. It's just saying if the spouse feels, I can't get over this, under this, around this, I can't get past it, then he says you, you are justified in walking. And you can remarry. If that happened, you can remarry. Now, the Apostle Paul deals with one other exception, and I want to cover it. Paul wrote about a specific kind of marital dilemma, and that is of a married believer with an unbeliever. The believer has either gotten saved, two, two unbelievers got married, and one of them gets saved, or one of them 
married an unbeliever, which I'm going to say boldly tonight is a mistake. Especially when you're young, because here's the thing. If you as a Christian man or woman marry an unbeliever, kids are coming. And you're going to have to decide taking them to church, raising them in the Christian faith, praying together, the home being led in the way of Christ. All of those things are going to become explosive issues if you marry somebody who is not a believer. Well, I'll just win them to Jesus because I love them so much. Paul says in the same chapter, you have no guarantee you'll save them. Wake up. There is no guarantee. If they do get saved, you're lucky. Because they may not get saved. Then you got to live with it. Well, I'm going off to church. Okay, see you when you get back. I'm taking the kids. Well, I don't want you to take the kids. Well, then let's compromise. I'll take them one Sunday and the next Sunday you can keep them. Okay. And you're into all kinds of stuff like that. Now, here's what Paul said. If a fellow believer has a wife who is not a believer and she's willing to continue living with him, he must not leave her. And if a believing woman has a husband who is not a believer and he's willing to continue living with her, she must not leave him. Because what does that say about the Christian faith if you boogie? I knew it was going to be a bunch of hurrahs and loud amens and jumping up and shouting tonight, but I'm, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to press on. Because uh, I'm just reading the Bible to you. Your Bible. You've got one in your lap. I'm reading it to you. For the believing wife, now here's an interesting saying. For the believing wife brings holiness to her marriage. Otherwise, your children will not be holy, but now they are holy. What does that mean? Is that literally telling us that if I'm a believer in the marriage and I've got a spouse that's not a believer, me being a believer makes them saved? No. That's not what it's talking about. It doesn't make them holy in the sense that they would be forgiven of all their sin as if they turned to Christ. That's not what it's talking about. It's saying you being a believer and the two of you being in a marriage before God and you being a believer, it has a sanctifying effect on the unbeliever. It's a witness. Read 1 Peter 3. The, the unbelieving husband is won by the godly lifestyle of his wife. So it has a sanctifying effect. And the same on the children. If there's one believer amongst the two, the children, it has a sanctifying effect on them. Because your influence, your godly influence, your biblical influence, your love for Christ is going to bleed into that marriage and into that home. That's what he's talking about. It doesn't save them. They need to come to Christ on their own. But it's saying, you, the believer, you have a powerful influence on that home. He goes on. But if the husband or wife who isn't a believer insists on leaving, if they just say, I can't stand this, I'm not in this, let them go. Did you read what I read? Everybody say, let them go. If the unbeliever says, I've had it with you and your God and Christ stuff and all this other stuff and I'm out of here, 
you can't give up your Christianity to keep them. Hello? Because Jesus said you got to love your father. If you love your father or your mother or your children or anything more than me, you're not worthy of me. So if it comes down to you give up your Christian faith or I'm out of here, bye-bye. But that is after you have prayed and tried and prayed and witnessed and given it everything you've got. But if they want to walk, I'm just reading to you what Paul said. In such cases, the believing husband or wife is no longer bound to the other. For God has called you to live in peace. I will not give up my Christian faith for any human being on earth. I will not choose a human being over my Lord. If I do that, I'm not fit to follow him. Now, that doesn't mean you try to figure out ways to bug them so bad they want out. This means you earnestly have tried and prayed, and still they want to leave. So in this case, a divorce is allowed if an unbelieving spouse no longer wants to dwell with you. Now back to Jesus. The bottom line of his instructions is this. Regarding divorce is to honor God's original intent for marriage. That's the number one, the highest and the best. Honor God's original intent for marriage. One man, one woman for life. I'm going to be real bold tonight. Not two men, two women. I'm just telling you what it says. A man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife. Amen. Now, I want to add something here because I know what some of you are thinking. If you've been in a failed marriage resulting in divorce, and sexual unfaithfulness was not the cause, but it was something irreconcilable differences or whatever was said in divorce court. Listen carefully to your pastor. God forgives you. And God has mercy. God loves you unconditionally. And you are never to let failures in the past define you now. Okay? Everybody say with me, what's done is done. You can't undo it. You can't unscramble eggs. And, and so there's certain things you can't unscramble. All right? So don't live in condemnation. If you're remarried, resolve to honor God in your marriage and to glorify him because there's no condemnation, particularly for the believer after they've repented. So walk in the forgiveness of the blood and go on. Amen? Yes. But God's highest and best still is to avoid divorce. Malachi, God says, I hate divorce. As a boy, I went through four divorces with my parents. Bing, 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 bing. Four divorces. And uh, I was turned, I was given to my, my dad with every one of them. And I grew to struggle with even believing in love. 
um, believing that something could last. Because all I saw was, was things not lasting. So I understand the divorce thing as far as being the kid in it back and forth like a ping pong ball. And I can tell you that God's highest and best is to somehow through Christ work it through. But if you don't and it fails, go on. It's not the unpardonable sin. Okay. This next one's fun. So how many say amen? amen. Because you've probably never thought of this next section, and I'm going to go ahead and close with this. <clears throat> but Jesus talk about, taught, taught about not making binding oaths to God. Now, you've probably never thought about that. But listen to what he says, because if Jesus said it, it matters. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you will not swear falsely, but perform your oaths to the Lord. That was what Moses wrote. But this, again, Jesus is going to add another dimension to it and add some height, depth, width, and breadth to it. In Leviticus, here's what Moses wrote. Don't swear falsely by my name. So it's God talking in the first person. Don't swear falsely by my name. And so profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. What's he talking about? The idea here is that under the old covenant, if you made a vow to God, all this and all that, all the other, if you will do this for me, I'll do this for you. If you'll get me out of jail, I'll serve you the rest of my life. If you'll get me out of this problem, I will this, that, and the other. I vow. If you did that in the Old Testament, you better be sure you followed through. If you didn't, God said, you profane my name. Because you're swearing in his name. You're saying, by God or in the presence of God, I tell you, I will this and that. And I'm vowing. As Jesus was with the issue of murder and the issue of adultery, he takes this command now and he adds to it. He says, but I say to you, don't swear at all. Neither by heaven, for it's God's throne, nor by the earth, for it's his footstool, not by Jerusalem, for it's the city of the great king. Don't even swear by your own head, because you can't make one hair white or black. Now, Jesus here was dealing with a particularly bad habit the Pharisees had gotten into, and we've done it here in America as well. But here's what they were doing. They had devolved into swearing or making empty vows in everyday common casual conversation. Okay? Swearing by things, you'll note, that God had created. Uh, like heaven. I swear by heaven. Or I swear by earth. Or I swear by Jerusalem. Or I swear by the hair on my head. I don't know how you do that. How they came up with that. But they had. Because Jesus is now nailing different things they had begun to swear by or make oaths by. We do the same thing in America. Here's what we do. I swear on my mother's grave. You ever heard that one? Or may God strike me dead if that's not true. You better be careful. Or I swear on my life I'm telling you the truth. And we say these things in casual conversation. That's what they were doing in Jesus' day. 
And Jesus is telling them to recklessly swear by the things God created or by God's name alone is getting perilously close to God himself. Since he created those things, even the hair on your head. And in doing so, they were in danger of profaning his name. Taking his name in vain. Because, listen, GD is not the only way you take God's name in vain. You can take God's name in vain by swearing in his name, bringing him into something, prophesying in his name, and it's not real. You're pulling his name into something. You're attaching his name to something he's not in or on. So I'm so careful if I prophesy because I'm not going to drag God's name into a false prophecy. That's profaning his name. So there's a lot of ways you can do it. Jesus said to the Pharisees, break this terrible habit. Quit doing it. And he said, here's the way you break it. Just say yes or no in God's presence. If God calls you, say yes or no. Stop right there. Yes or no. Amen? Oh, yes, and not only, Lord, will I follow you, but I'll follow you all the way to the death, and I'll follow you to Africa. I'll follow you. No, no kidding, brother. I'll follow you to Uganda. I'll follow you anywhere in the world. I'll do anything you tell me to do. You're going to have to answer for all those oaths you said to him in a moment of excitement. No, just say yes. Yep. Will you go, Jeff? Yes. Peter said, I'll not deny you. These cowards behind me, the other disciples, they'll do it, but not me. No, I'll go all the way to death for you, Lord. Peter soon ate warm, basted crow because he immediately broke his oath and he profaned the Lord. Listen to Ecclesiastes and I'm going to close. As you enter the house of God, Ecclesiastes 5.1, as you enter the house of God, keep your ears open and your mouth shut. <laughs> Isn't that good? It's evil to make mindless offerings to God. Don't make rash promises. And don't be hasty in bringing matters before God. After all, he's in heaven. You're on earth. Let me paraphrase. He's in heaven. You're not. So let your words be few in the presence of God. I've learned I don't make big boasts to God. I've fallen too much. I don't make big boasts to God. When I was young, I said all kinds of things in my excitement and my zeal, but I don't anymore. I just say, Lord, what you want me to do, tell me, and I'm going to say yes or no. Of course, I'm not going to say no, but I'm going to say yes, sir, and it stops there. I don't make boasts. My flesh is too weak. I'm human. I don't want to have to say, oops, I know I promised it, but God, I just can't do it. Mm -mm. I profaned his name. Y'all are too quiet for your own good tonight. <laughs> Amen. Do we have a, one or two questions? One or two? Anybody have a question here tonight about anything we've covered?
Okay, let's quick. Connor, there you go. Go ahead. This might seem silly or simple, but there's a lot of young folks going around with the OMG, but they say, you know, yeah. and I've got a seven-year-old granddaughter, and I, would, I just sucked in my breath. She, she, she said OMG without the abbreviations, and I just went, <gasps> and she's like, what? Yeah. You know, and I had to explain to yeah. her, is that also taking the Lord's name in vain? Yes. I don't think as much as if you say, use God's name in a curse word, but even more, if you profane his name by promises, you, you just don't keep. It's, it's dangerous. Or you swear by something that is in heaven. I, I swear by the name of the Lord. Don't ever do that. Just say yes or no. I think OMG, I don't use OMG because I do think it's kind of using his name flippantly, but I don't think it's as bad as what Christ was talking about. That's my take on that. But I don't do it. I just, I just don't do it. All right, another one? Way back there, Vance. Yeah. Uh, you already covered it partly in your discussion about the yes or no thing, but, you know, the scripture that refers to don't, Add anything, but just say yes or no. I forget where it is. Might be in Matthew somewhere. But anyway, I just wanted you to expand on that, and uh, because you know sometimes people will will go on and on about what they're going to do, and add so much to the yes or no. And and it doesn't. You mean say, making promises of what they're going to do? Well, that and just adding to it, like uh, I can't think of an example right now, but just more than yes or no, they just go into all kinds of stuff. And uh, I don't know if that's true. Yeah. Again, I don't think the Lord is, is saying, like, you, you shouldn't say, yes, Lord, I want to serve you the rest of my days. That's not a boast if you say, I want to. But Peter boasted, you know, I will never forsake you. I will die for you. I will go to jail with you. And all of it went out the window as soon as the possibility was there. That was where he went beyond yes or no. I don't think we need to be legalistic or afraid to say, you know, I say to the Lord these days, Lord, open doors for us to take the gospel to the world. I'm asking you, you open the door and Lord, I'll, I'll go through it. With your grace, I'll go through it. It's not a boast. I'm just letting him know I'm willing. Here am I, Lord, send me, Isaiah said. So I don't think we need to be freaked out about saying more than yes. But the principle is, don't go boasting. Because when you don't do it, you come under condemnation. And you got to deal with it. So I don't know if that answers you, Vance, but uh, anyway, does that help? Yeah, what about the expression, uh, holy cow? Is that kind of a don't? No, I don't think there's anything. I say holy moly all the time. I don't know where it came from. My mother used to say, holy Toledo. I don't know where that came from. I thought about that later. What did she mean? What, what is that? So, no, I say holy moly all the time. I don't know. That's not. We don't need to get paranoid. We just need to stay with what it says and don't go beyond what it says. And, and so that's where I want to stay with it. So anybody else? Way over here. All right. This is a Ben's boy. No telling what kind of question I'm going to get. All right. Amen. Tell them who you are. My name is Brian Benz. 
Uh, Brian Benz. And you're an officer now. I am. Amen. Yes, sir. Uh, so it kind of goes on my line of work as well because I come into contact with it a lot on that topic of divorce. What about uh, abusive relationships and such like that? That's a great question, and I've wondered about that myself. And I will say, first of all, if you're being physically or emotionally truly abused, I believe you should separate. If it doesn't stop quickly, you separate. There is no, I would never tell somebody to stay in a situation where their life was in danger to honor the word of God. That wouldn't be the, the will of God at all. You separate. And now you could go into a lot of things here, and I'm not a professional at this, but I do know I've seen and I have advised people to separate. I advised one woman who I helped get into a shelter a number of years ago who was bruised. I got her into a shelter. And she had to make stipulations to him. You get into counseling for X amount of time, and that counselor has to tell me you're listen that you're listening to them. And I have to know that there's improvement. And I'll come back when I'm ready, and there is no way you're going to pressure me to come back into this. And you put stipulations. However, there are some situations where, and I, and I want to be careful here because this is something Christ did not address. He didn't address pedophilia either. He didn't address bestiality either. There are some things he addressed and some he didn't. I will tell you this. I learned uh, a, a number of years ago that Nicole Brown Simpson was advised or counseled to go back with him. And whatever you think about what went down there, let's just, I don't want to cause, stir anything up, but... Um, I would never advise a woman to go back into a situation or a man because I've seen women shoot men in my ministry. Literally, in church Sunday morning, shot him Sunday night. <laughs> yeah. Let no one ever tell you the ministry is easy. If they say that, they've never been a minister because they're in church Sunday morning, hallelujah, praise the Lord, kumbaya, and shot him Sunday night. So... I would never advise somebody to go back into a truly dangerous situation. If they remain single for a long period of time, I don't know where to go from there exactly. I think it's relative to the situation. But a lot of the times, it shakes that person up where they genuinely get help and get a handle on it. But I don't think anybody should be asked to stay in an abusive situation long at all. Especially if you're being struck. out. I know that's strong, but if that's what it's come to, there needs to be a separation. In my humble opinion, this is, I'm not speaking prophetically. I have limited information on the scriptures because Jesus did not deal with it, but I hear you and you see it in what you do. I know you do a lot and it's terrible. Same thing. Children, Terrible. 
So I wish I could give you a more definitive answer, but where the Bible is silent, then you've got to kind of put everything you know about Scripture together and try to give a decent answer without a definitive verse you can point to. Okay? But if you're in an abusive situation being hit, out. Because it progresses from there. It, it never stays stagnant. That's been my experience, okay? Well, this is heavy tonight. All right, one more. Is there one more question? Desertion. Well, desertion, he said, 1 Corinthians 7. If they desert and they're gone and they won't come back, um, especially if they're an unbeliever, but I think they're acting like an unbeliever to go. But if they go and they're unbeliever, you're not in bondage to such cases. 1 Corinthians 7. Okay? Anyone else? One more. I'll take one more. Oh, one back there. Way back there. I'm embarrassed to ask this, but I should know because I have been with the Lord for many years. But I heard a a pastor, and I believe, I'm not going to name names, but I believe you would probably, you would probably like him. Um, he said... Well, I don't know. I don't like very many pastors. Well, huh? no. He, he's not... <laughs> I'm anyway, kidding. Go ahead. He, and I looked the scripture up, and it is there. I can't remember. Anyway, he said that, or at least my understanding was that when you're born, your name is in the book of life. But... If you, through your lifetime, if you've never accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior, truly accepted him, your name will be blotted out of the book of life. And in a way, that kind of made sense to me because we know there are scriptures that says God's not willing that anyone perish, but that all come to godly repentance. You know he loves mm-hmm. us. Of course, I realize there are some people, especially in the Old Testament, Pharaoh and, and some of them that were you know, going to be mean. And, of course, Lord, the Lord knows us from a beginning yeah. to the end. But, yeah. um, and I wondered, you know, it says no one can pluck us out of God's hand Yeah. Uh, if we're really truly born again. And I do believe that. But I just wondered if, if it is possibly true that I'm just... You know, babies. If 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 your if your name is written in the if when you're born, if your name would be written in the book of life, and especially if your child and not reached the age of accountability, then it's my understanding that they do go to heaven. Yeah, I, I know um, you have to truly accept Jesus yeah. as your savior. Yeah, the, so my issue wonder. with that would be, I don't see that in the scripture. It, I just don't see it there. Uh, and I'm not raining on his parade. I don't know who said it, but um, it, it's really kind of close to the Mormon doctrine that before you were born in your or conceived in your mama's womb, you were already an existing spirit out there, and the spirit found a, a body to live in when you were conceived. That's part of Mormon doctrine. Um, now it's not going that far. But uh, my understanding of Scripture is your name is not in the book of life until you repent and the blood covers you. And then your name is written there. And um, 
In the book of Revelation, when it is, is said, if you don't repent, uh, if you do repent, I will not remove your name from the book of life or blot your name out. Um, I've never taken that to mean you can lose your salvation, that God's going to blot your name out. I've taken that to be a promise that you're in me, you're walking with me, I will not blot your name out. I will not blot your name out. Um, now, some of you may disagree with that. I don't know how you get lost, saved, lost, saved, lost, saved over and over again. I don't know how you get unborn again and then reborn again. I don't know how that happens. So we can deal with that another night. But um, I don't think everybody's name is in the book. I don't see it. There's not a verse I can point to. But I can point to verses that when you repent, your name is written in the book of life. Yeah. Yeah. Call him up and tell him I want to meet with him. And No, I'm just kidding. Let's stand up together, can we? We could take questions for a long time. Good to see all of you. Connor, did I cut you off? You got a question? Well, there is no sound. There. Um, my question is the Son of God. Uh, why is his name Jesus Christ? Is it first name Jesus, last name Christ? or um... Paul uses both. It's Jesus Christos or Christos Jesus. And um, the Christ has to do with his sonship. Okay? Uh, Paul, when Paul wants to make a certain point about him, he calls him Christ Jesus. And you'll see the interchange in his writing. Sometimes Jesus Christ, sometimes Christ Jesus. The, the Christ, the anointed one, uh, comes first. And when Paul is wanting to emphasize that part of him, Christ the anointed one, he says Christ Jesus. But in other places, he'll say Jesus Christ. Jesus Christos. Okay? So it just depends on how he wants to emphasize him at that moment. So, amen. I, I call the Lord more and more Christ the Lord. Christ, are you serving Christ? Because to me, he's the anointed one, the Savior, the Deliverer, Christ the anointed one. So I call him that more and more. I'll say to somebody, do you know Christ? That may sound too, anyway, let's pray. Father, we just thank you for being with us tonight, teaching us tonight, helping us tonight. And Lord, thank you for your word. Help us, Lord, to walk with you in a way that is wise and that is pleasing to you. And thank you that there is liberty in Jesus Christ and no condemnation in Jesus' name.